This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Well, a couple of years ago, the story in the market to buy homes was, why aren't millennials buying them? That answer came from a couple of different factors, but now it appears that more millennials are getting out of their parents' basements and buying homes. Some of them in major cities, but many of them in the suburbs. It has helped shrink the number of homes on the market, but it has also been a boost to other retail sectors, as you obviously need to have stuff to put in those houses. Still, the question being asked, though, is why now? Joining me to discuss that and more, Benjamin Keyes, Assistant Professor of Real Estate here at the Wharton School, as well as a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. And also joining us on the phone, Richard Green, who's Director of the Center for Real Estate at the University of Southern California and also a professor in the School of Public Policy. Ben, as always, great seeing you. Thanks for coming over. Yeah, thanks for having me. Richard, great to have you with us. Good to be with you. Thank you. Um Give us your idea, Ben, as to why you think all of a sudden we are starting to see millennials jump on board here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really a function of how hard the Great Recession hit this generation. Coming out of college at a time when unemployment was at extreme highs, where it looked really desperate from a job market standpoint. A lot of people were underemployed, even if they were employed, working in sort of short-term part-time temp jobs. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's really a function of the overall economy improving really dramatically. And I think, so that's probably the biggest factor that you just had this really long overhang of very high unemployment rates or underemployment rates. And so they just didn't have the job stability that would sort of lead you to the point where you could save up for a down payment and feel confident and secure that you would want to stay in one place for a long time. Richard? I I agree with Ben. A couple of other things. One is Uh, The marriage rate, which was exceedingly low, has gone to just low, and marriage is the number one predictor of whether people are homeowners or not. Uh, The the second thing is I actually think fintech has mattered is the way traditional lenders underwrote meant that there were a lot of well-qualified people who weren't able to get access to mortgage markets. And if you look at some of the fintech companies using data science in order to underwrite people. They're finding people who are very good risks to lend to uh, that they're starting to bring into the market. Also joining is Eric Sussman, who's an adjunct professor of accounting and real estate at uh, the University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA. Eric, great to have you with us. What are your thoughts? Why are millennials jumping on board? Well, I agree with the other comments that were made. I think there are probably some other factors as well. It's just they're reaching the age where they can finally afford to buy homes. I mean, uh, the, as was discussed earlier, there's some later marriages in that uh, generation, but they're reaching that age where now they are finally able, whether it's financial or they've got job stability, uh, to enter the market. And rates have remained at least recently low, and so affordability was, uh, was possible as well. So that's all I would add to the other comments. Ben? Yeah, I mean, I think just to to add on that, I really like Richard's point about about fintech. I mean, if you think about the types of um, job histories that a lot of millennials are going to have, they're not going to look like the types of factory workers who worked in one place for 30 years and uh, received a pension. Um, So they're cobbling together potentially many different jobs, potentially multiple different incomes from from two earner couples. And so um, those sort of those sort of less even and predictable incomes were often very challenging to underwrite from traditional 
kind of approaches. And so I, I really think that the, the intersection of of sort of, a, of an improving job market as well as um, some sort of broader approaches to getting uh, getting these households in the door for uh, for home ownership and qualifying for a mortgage um, seems like a really important point. Richard, where do you rate the affordability in general? And obviously, there are certain areas of the country which obviously it, it's it's a lot more expensive to live in. Obviously, up around San Francisco, the Bay Area has been well noted uh, as an area where the housing market has exploded, the prices of it in the last few years. But when you think about affordability, where is it right now? Well, again, you, you, you put the question exactly the right way. It really depends on where you live. So if you look at the I-5 corridor, actually, that's not quite right, five up between San Diego and Los Angeles, and then up the 101 uh, to San Francisco and Seattle, uh, affordability is bad. Um, and if you look at sort of D.C. to Boston, it, other than Philadelphia, which I always call the best buy in American cities, uh, affordability is bad. But you get to the rest of the country with interest rates as they are, with house prices being quite reasonable. You, you could buy a really nice house in Dallas and Houston, which are uh, strong job centers for $200,000. Their affordability is quite good, and home ownership looks better than renting does as a value proposition. So oh, I, I guess think between the Appalachians on the one side and the Rockies on the other, affordability is very good. Uh, but you get to the coast, it's still, it's it's a real problem. Eric? Yeah, I, I would just add a couple of points. Look, you know, even that being true, you know, you have to still put 20% down. So, you know, a lot of these folks in uh, in this generation, again, just don't have the wherewithal to, to purchase. And a lot of them are carrying a tremendous amount of student debt as well. Yeah. So as, that's another issue all of us can opine on is just the increasing levels of student debt levels, which, along with the delay in marriage and household formation, have caused just uh, you know, challenges in, the, in you know, this particular segment of the market. But I want to make sure we're clear about one thing. There's definitely been an increase in the home ownership rate, but it's still, by historical standards, very low. And yeah. I think probably all of us would agree it's likely to remain low as we look forward uh, you know, over the next decade or two. But how much do you think, Ben, though, that that the, the, the rising cost of rents have obviously played a role in this as well? People that were very comfortable in renting a house or renting an apartment two or three years ago, maybe not as comfortable right now. Yeah, I mean, rising rents, especially along the coasts, which Richard mentioned, um, is really shifting the, the sort of trade-off between owning versus renting. And that's going to tip a lot of people into the ownership column as rents rise. And I think that's really a function of of underbuilding in the places where where millennials want to be and where the jobs are. I mean, we've talked about this in the past that in the Bay Area, it looks like there are six times as many jobs created over the last 10 years than there are housing units created. Yeah. And that may be the most severe um, kind of case of underbuilding, but I think that's true in a lot of the coastal cities. And that's partly because of geographic reasons and partly because of um, local regulatory reasons, zoning reasons, sort of not in my backyard, nimbyism of... Um, preventing denser building. But I think, you know, you're really seeing the sharp rise in rents over the last few years. And that's um, that's certainly, you know, after enough years of watching your rents go up and up and up and potentially bouncing around to look for more affordable rental units, at some point you realize, well, actually, maybe it, it does make sense to, to buy. And there are options for buying um, with less than 20% down. So the FHA programs, you tend to put three or 4% down and Fannie and Freddie have both introduced three or four percent down payment programs as well. But a, but a lot of it was also getting rid of the option 
uh, of the zero down, which obviously was a problem going back a decade or so. Absolutely. So the yeah. the, the zero down kind of loans where you would, you would usually take out both a first and a second lien at the time of origination. So these were kind of called piggyback loans where you yeah. could get away with zero percent down. So that is a thing of the past at the moment. I think it's a probably a, a sign of a slightly healthier credit market in a lot of ways, a more disciplined credit market. But at the same time, there are options out there for buyers who can't put 20% down. Richard, well, and then in terms of the uh, the affordability, as we talked about, it it really does depend on the market uh, where, where you go. Uh, what is the state of the builders themselves? How confident are builders right now? That are that are looking. Obviously, a lot of them have property to be able to build on. There was a time where they felt really good about being able to put put up a, a fifty unit uh, complex of, of single family homes. Where are they right now? So, just I just want to interject one thing. We still have a zero down program, and it's called the VA program. So, if okay. there are veterans listening in the audience, and and that's an excellent program, and. It actually performed very well through the global financial crisis. So I just wanted to throw that sure. out there. Yeah. Um, on, on home building, you know, the interesting thing about that is uh, if you look at where we are relative to history, we're just now kind of back to normal in terms of the number of houses we've built. Uh, so we've gone 10 years at building less than our normal pace of building. Uh, as a result of that, Lori Goodman at Urban calculates we're about 3 million houses short in the U.S., and, and that's a conservative estimate. And you talk to builders, the problem they face is there are basically two markets where there are two areas where their stuff pencils out, and one is the subsidized market, and that's fairly small, and the other is the high-end market. And the reason for that is because sort of the fixed cost of building a house now, in particular because of the fees involved in building houses, uh, it just doesn't make any sense to build a house that's not built for a pretty high-income person. So they're finding that that stuff is going quite well. But the ability to build for the middle of the market for the $60,000, dollars $80,000 a year household uh, is just not there. And it, it's something they complain about. So what do you think is the impact of that moving forward? Because obviously there are millions of people that would fall into that category that need to be looking at, you know, housing uh, that is in that that sub $120,000 a year range or $120,000 purchase price range. Well, I think I, I think it's a problem and I think it's one of the reasons we're seeing house prices continue to increase is and, and this this also happens on the rental side as well because the size of the housing stock determines rent is we're just not building enough. I mean, as it is, we need to build somewhere in the neighborhood of 600,000 houses a year just to replace the old stuff that's falling apart. Uh, we're not at one and a half million. We figure we need uh, at least a million a year for population growth and new households and so on. So, uh, you know, it's like anything else. As you build less of something or you make less of something relative to demand for it, uh, the value of it's going to go up. and one of the things we're seeing is the the first time market is stuck because the first time home buyers don't have anything to move up to, right? Because again, the new stuff is so darn expensive. Eric, well, right, and that's not going to change. I mean, if you think about, we mentioned NIMBYism and regulatory issues. You think about just the cost, land acquisition costs, the cost to build now with labor markets being tighter and the wildfire uh, and uh, in- impacts of the hurricane down in Texas. I mean, what's going to happen is it's just going to get more and more difficult to build. So on the supply side, I don't see any real relief there. So the trends of increased prices and increased rents, they may be uh, you know, softer 
uh, growth that we've had uh, in the last few years. But those supply trends are going to continue. I don't see any relief there. Ben? Just adding one more point to this, I think if we think a little bit more about the property ladder and sort of the ability for these first-time buyers to to buy a house and then move up and then sort of free up some of those um, starter homes, uh, you know, the baby boom generation has a home ownership rate over 80% or thereabouts, um, and they're they've really been been kind of in uh, locked in place, especially over the over the period of the Great Recession, and we've seen this long-term trend in a decline in geographic mobility in the U.S. And so we're seeing less um, less people moving um, out of their houses and, and we're seeing more sort of arguments that uh, baby boomers are going to, to sort of retire in place mm-hmm. um, as sort of a growing phenomenon. And if that is the case, then there's going to be sort of f- less turnover in the suburbs and in some of the more desirable neighborhoods that, that are going to sort of freeze up a portion of the property ladder and make it that much harder for the entire sort of chain of events that needs to occur to open up those starter homes for for new buyers. So then, Eric, if if, if the millennials, and a couple of stories have talked about how millennials in general may not necessarily always be looking for that starter home, uh, I find that interesting. If they are looking to go ahead and make that purchase of a $300,000, $350,000 house, whatever that number may be, as their quote-unquote first house, doesn't that also affect the, the turnover rate for them later on in life in that necessarily they may not want to look, when they get into that first house, that may be their house for their entire life instead of what happens, or at least in the past, from what I remember, is that you would buy a house and then maybe you would move up to that second house. Right. Well, look, the biggest growth in renters has been the baby boomers. So you've got a lot of baby boomers who are moving out of their homes. They're not selling them. Right. They're either renting them out or passing them on to their next generation. And then they're renting apartments. Uh, it's been a tremendous area of growth. So you've got both factors uh, you know, moving simultaneously. Uh, people aren't selling. Uh, people are staying in their homes for longer periods of time. They're living longer, of course. And then when they finally move out, before they may move into, let's say, assisted living or something like that, God forbid, they're, they're, they're moving to apartments, amenitized Class A apartments. It's a fascinating trend. Richard? Yeah, well, I, uh, um, I, I really don't have anything to add to what uh, the two other respondents said. I, the, the one thing, though, is that uh, it's actually long been the case that old people like to stay in their houses. They like to retire in their houses. This is something we've seen in past generations, and it's actually one of the reasons why I don't think there will be a baby boom-induced crash in the housing market. People talked about when, when the baby booms get baby boomers get older, they're all going to move out of their houses, and that will cause a flood of stuff on the market. If we look at past generations, basically, if you look at where people live when they're 60, that's sort of where they stay until health keeps them from staying in their house. Uh, so I don't think this is actually anything particularly new. It's just we have so many more old people now than we've had in years past that it's a more obvious phenomenon. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Ben, you, you briefly mentioned before about uh, the, the, the loan market for a lot of these properties right now. It's certainly not what it was go back five, seven, eight years ago when it was very hard. I, it may be a little bit easier, but still a lot of the, the mindset and the policies that we came out of the housing bubble with are still in place. 
Yeah, I think I think the the Great Recession is still fresh enough in in people's minds that you know for the most part we're we're, see, we're we haven't seen a return of the subprime market in the same way. We haven't seen a return of a private securitized mortgage mortgage market um, kind of exemplified in the in the big short and other and other types of um, of narratives of the crisis. And so I think in terms of the the biggest excesses, I mean those those kinds of um, extraordinarily generous lending uh, terms and opportunities aren't there anymore. I think the the biggest change in, in many ways has been a, a change towards you know really carefully underwriting the ability to, to repay. So there was a, a huge yeah. increase in um, in low documentation loans or no documentation loans, uh, and a big increase in the in the high LTV lending as well. Um, but we've seen a, a tightening of credit scores that that really hasn't uh, softened much at all. Um, and we've seen a much tighter sort of set of standards for income documentation. And so relative to the boom years, um, things are are still tight. But I think, you know, as the as the recovery has gone on and, and as you've seen house prices rise and sort of the underlying collateral improve. So a lot of people, as we've talked about in the past, were severely underwater yeah. on their mortgages. And, and as that kind of underwater crisis has recovered in most major cities, but not all, still a lot of people underwater in places like Las Vegas, um, you know, you're you're getting to the point where lenders are a little bit more optimistic, and you're seeing um, certainly on the down payment side with with the Fannie and Freddie programs um, some some more uh, loosening there. But relative to the, those peak years, we're nowhere near that type of credit market. So I think we're still, um, you know, climbing climbing out of out of the depths of sort of the tightest um, credit conditions. So Richard, then having those kind of standards remaining in place. And, and whether it be for the next five years, 10 years, maybe even longer, what does that mean not only for the millennials, but that generation behind them, the Gen Z, I guess, is the next generation. Uh, I guess there are we looking at a similar type of scenario in terms of home buying? Well, I think the first thing, and I think Ben implied it, is in many ways what we're seeing now is a good thing, is we got very sloppy with underwriting. And I think one of the lessons we should take from the crash is that underwriting really matters. I, I actually have come to the view that underwriting and loan products are more important than down payment, or at least as important than down payment uh, in terms of determining the likelihood of getting repaid. Uh, I mean, to me, one of the miracles Ben referred to Las Vegas is overwhelmingly people in Las Vegas are still making payments on their mortgages, even though they've been upside down for 10 years now. And so that suggests that people really do want to repay their loans when they live in a house that uh, the loan is secured by. Uh, But I I am optimistic going forward that we will use uh, algorithmic underwriting in order to figure out who is a worthy borrower. And I I think this is particularly important because one of the things about millennials, and it may be true about the next generation as well, is they have an aversion to credit that's unlike previous generations. And so we have large numbers of people called credit invisibles. Uh, Those are people who don't have a deep enough credit file to get a good FICO score or to get any FICO score at all. Um, And so if we're able to look at people's bank accounts, for example, and of course people would have to give the underwriter permission to do this, and look at certain regularities, like regularity of rent payment, regularity of utility payment, regularity of income, and use that information to underwrite, it's possible we'll have a whole new platform that will allow these less traditional kinds of borrowers to get approved for loans. And again, I want to emphasize they'll be well underwritten, 
there will be evidence that they're the sorts of people who are very likely to repay their mortgages. And so I'm somewhat optimistic that technology will solve this sometime in the next five to 10 years. And I think it's on the road to doing it right now. Eric, do you think the technology will play that big role? You know, uh, I, 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 I don't. But, you know, look, I, I, I've always said, if you want to look for bubbles, watch the debt markets. The, you know, when lenders start loosening their underwriting policies and allowing those folks who really shouldn't be buying homes. I mean, there's a balancing act that we have to consider. A lot of people who bought homes really shouldn't buy homes. It's arguably why some people shouldn't go to college, perhaps. So, you know, from my standpoint, if lenders start reducing their credit standards. And hopefully the technology will work and they'll make better decisions. But you know, I, I watch lenders very carefully because that's where you know, bubbles form is on the debt side. Ben? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the sort of algorithmic approach has a, lot of, has a lot of potential. And I think that given where standards are right now, I mean, Richard made my implicit point explicit, which is that, that um, we are in, I think, a much much better place credit-wise. Yeah. Um, and if you're looking at the performance of these loans right now, they're performing extraordinarily well. So default rates on mortgages are a very, very low rate right now. Um, so, I mean, I think generally, you know, in terms of where the where we sort of fall and the pendulum swings one, to one side and, and the other, um, but I think we're in a, in a pretty safe spot right now, and, and loosening credit standards a little bit isn't going to have a big impact on that. I, I saw a report by Zillow the other day that uh, it, it aggregated the amount of spend by millennials on homes last year uh, in 2016, and the number they came up with was $514 billion in terms of spend. When you hear that amount, and obviously part of that, again, is market and cost and size, but what 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 do you gather from that, Ben, when you talk about that kind of amount of money being spent by millennials yeah, on, I mean, on homes? Right, so it's a, it's a combination of uh, you know the housing market being an enormous market and uh, the millennial generation being an enormous generation. And so when we think about the number of prime-age workers, um, it's very quickly uh, becoming the case that there are more prime-age millennial workers than there are prime-age baby boomers or any other generation. And so, you know, that, that number will, will only go up, I think, uh, in, in coming years as the millennial generation kind of ages into these peak homeownership years. Um, and I think it means that we need to keep really close tabs on on what this group is doing. You know, it's it's always fun to to convene a, a group of um, people to talk about millennials who aren't actually millennials, and yeah. uh, none of us are. So it's it's always fun to speculate. I guess I'm closest. Um, yeah, Ben, I thought you were a millennial. <laughs> well, thank you, Richard. That's, that's very kind well, of you to say. Um, I missed the millennial window by just a couple of years, depending on where you draw the line. But um, he, he looks it, Richard. Though I will say that. Uh, but but I think you know more generally in thinking about this sort of the broader shifts that that Eric, that both Eric and Richard alluded to in terms of um, delayed marriage and delayed childbirth and sort of you know all the ways in which student debt is having a role and so we're seeing a lot of um, a lot of changes to the timing of these types of purchases and yeah. so I think the the thing to keep an eye on is whether. This is simply delayed, or whether there's something more transformative about underlying preferences. Well, it, it, Eric, Rich, I can't remember who said it. I mean, but one of you made the comment about the fact that even though we are seeing millennials buying houses more often, we're still talking about very low house ownership rates right, right. in general. And, and I guess the question is, uh, are we kind of in a new norm where the expectation of house ownership has to be a little bit lower than, say, when the baby boomer generation was was buying homes. Richard? Well, I think you have to look at marriage and see whether millennials are delaying marriage or just aren't going to get married. So if you, if you look at my parents' generation, 
three quarters of them were married by the time they hit the age of 35. Uh, my generation, the boomers, it's two thirds. Uh, if you look at, I'm sorry, we're about 50%. If you look at uh, Gen Xers, it's a third. If you look at millennials, it's about a quarter. And I think there's reason to think the marriage rate is going to stay depressed. There's work by David Otter at MIT that suggests that this is the case for the simple reason that women are better educated than men are now, and women aren't interested in marrying men who are not as economically productive as they are. <laughs> and so if the marriage rate stays depressed, um, then I think the home ownership rate will stay depressed. But if this is wrong and we see that millennials just wait longer to get married, uh, then I think we'll see more normal home ownership rates. Eric? Yeah, I, I think it's a new norm. I really look at those trends, whether it's demographic shifts, uh, household formation, types of jobs, affordability issues, and on and on and on. I, I don't see that uh, changing. And again, we still have, as I said, the supply issues. So uh, no matter what the spend might be, I don't see just uh, the ability to really increase supply rapidly. Even we, the one thing we haven't talked about at all so far is just infrastructure issues, even despite the State of the Union last night. Yeah. But, you know, traffic is getting worse throughout our cities. I mean, I couldn't believe when I was in you know, Atlanta and even Dallas. I mean, these, these, all of the cities, even those that are, quote, more affordable, are suffering from terrible infrastructure and traffic issues. That's a, a, a big driver as well here we, we probably should talk about. Which, which Eric, I, I think it's a new norm. Which, Eric, playing off of that is the fact of, of where millennials wanted to live. And obviously the, the narrative for a long time was that millennials preferred to live in the big cities, which right. obviously was the was I think in part what you're talking about. But a lot of the this reporting on millennials buying homes suggests that they are actually looking to the suburbs again. They, but they have no choice, though. They don't have they don't have an alternative. So yeah. you know, again, it's, it's so part of it is, is if they don't have a choice, it's where the jobs are. I mean, you look in Southern California here. You know, it's interesting. The biggest employer here is in the Inland Empire, and it's Amazon. I mean, Amazon is hiring tons of people in the Inland Empire here, which may not mean a lot to our, our listeners, but uh, that is a huge tr change. So if the jobs follow you know, and are there, then the millennials will be able to move there, and they won't be fighting these traffic problems. Richard? And the, well, the other thing is, uh, a student of mine, uh, Hyunjo Lee, has done some great work on who's moving where, and, and the people moving to the suburbs are people without college degrees. And so you're seeing yeah. an outflux of people without college degrees from cities to suburbs, whereas people with college degrees are moving into cities. So we're seeing a, a very different character of our central cities and suburbs compared to where we were 30 years ago. Great having you all with us. Uh, Eric, Richard, thank you very much for joining us on the phone today. Pleasure. Thank Pleasure. you both. Welcome. Ben, as always, great seeing you. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks again. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.